So we're going to turn to the uh, scriptures. So please open your Bibles to First Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter four, rather. First Peter chapter four. We're going to be looking at um, verse seventeen to nineteen, but we're going to be, in particular, just um, looking at verse seventeen. We started with this two weeks ago. Last week we answered a question that came up during the course of uh, home groups regarding what happens to the children, why was God ordaining that the children be as well slaughtered with the woman and the elderly, and we looked at that. For those of you who did not have a chance to be with us last week, I encourage you to listen to last week's message. It's online. And today we're going to finish off uh, this first part of the passage that we're about to read. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 to verse 19. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We bless you. We thank you, Father. May the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight today. Amen. Please be seated. Next week, we're going to be looking at verse 18 in particular. It is with difficulty that the righteous are saved. What will become of the godless man and sinner? And today, we're going to be finishing off, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's the verse that we started with two weeks ago. What does Peter mean when he says it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God? We're just going to recap. You will remember that Peter takes this expression from Ezekiel chapter 9 at verse 6 where God tells the angels to start executing those who serve in the sanctuary, the priests. They were the ringleaders. They were the ones who were disobedient. Instead of being an example, instead of teaching God's people, they reveled in disobedience while going through the motions. We've seen, as of late, some ministers who have been exposed. And when it does happen, believe you me, I feel very troubled, as all of you do, but it is God that's exposing God is doing that. God is exposing ministers who are living double lives. Hopefully they will repent. I am not sure how many of these do repent. But if they do repent, then they'll stand before the Lord, not get a reward as they ought to get a reward, but at least they're saved as through fire. But judgment begins at the house of God. That's what God told Ezekiel. The priests and the Levites we're going to be executed first. Who does the household of God represent? We saw that it represents the people of God. Taken from 1 Peter chapter 2, 
we read in verses 4 and 5, and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by people, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones, notice that, you are living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So you're the household of God for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we are the household of God. We saw that two weeks ago. So the question that we have, does God judge his own? Does God judge his own? Well, we saw that God does judge judge his own. We saw the example of the church of Corinth. During their Holy Communion, there was abuse. There was, in particular, people getting drunk, going home well-fed. Others were going home hungry. So the rich were despising the poor. Those who had clout were despising those without status. The free were despising the slaves. Remember that Corinth was a city of slaves. It was a slave dump. So from this slave dump, God had saved many. They had to learn a new way of living. And uh, the people who were powerful, who were free, who had money and property, they took basically a higher position in the church. And so the Lord became... um, came into the picture and judged them. Notice in verse uh, 31 of 1 Corinthians where it says that if we would judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. We would not be judged. But when we are judged, who's the judging here? Who's doing it? It's God. When we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So this shows us how important it is for a church to exercise judgment and discipline. However, notice that the judgment that the Lord does towards his own is not one of condemnation. Notice, whoever he saves, he doesn't cast away. He corrects. He rebukes. Look at Revelation chapter 2 and 3. You have seven churches mentioned there. The church of Ephesus, of Smyrna, of Pergamon, of Thyatira, of Sardis, of Philadelphia, and lastly, Laodicea. The longest letter of those seven churches is addressed to Laodicea, the worst of the bunch. Why? Because the Lord says, those whom I love, I rebuke. The Lord rebukes his church. You see, we see the Lord sitting as high priest in the book of Hebrews. We see him sitting as king in uh, the Psalms. He is with his scepter and the rod of iron. But in the second chapter of Revelation and the third chapter, what do we see the Lord doing? It's interesting, isn't it? He's not sitting. He is standing. He is standing and walking among the churches. Isn't that something? Why is the Lord standing? Because that's his office as prophet. See, the Lord is king, he is high priest, and he's also prophet. And these churches, except for Smyrna, which was a suffering church, and Philadelphia, which was a church without clout, 
not as much suffering as the church of Smyrna, every single one of them was rebuked. Every one of those churches received rebuke. Commendation, such as the church of Ephesus, for its hard works, its perseverance, the fact that they were able to tell false apostles from the true one. But, he goes, I have this against you. You have forsaken your first love. The church of Smyrna receives the shortest letter. Why? Because that church is suffering. They have no rebuke. The Lord is just pleased with them. He just says, endure to the very end. Antipas, one of yours, has suffered and died. You endure and you will receive your reward. This is what he does. So the church that is the weakest or the worst of the bunch, if you would, the church of Laodicea, receives the longest letter. And the church that is the strongest, though suffering, the church of Smyrna, receives the shortest letter. No rebuke. Just a word of commendation. See, but why doesn't the Lord give many words of commendation to the church of Smyrna? Would not that church need a lot of encouragement? Absolutely not. Because the church that suffers has the spirit of Christ on it. The spirit of glory. That church did not need any other encouragement. It's the church that is not suffering that needs encouragement because it's weak. It totters. The knees are feeble. The hands hang down. The mouth is not praising. We're not calling on him. That's the church that needs to be prayed, encouraged. Not the church that is suffering. The church that is suffering is faithful. Have you ever met a suffering Christian? I have. And when I meet them, oh my goodness, I don't need to encourage them. They're encouraging me. I've been to hospital beds where the person is riddled with disease. And the person is smiling and waiting to meet his Lord. I'm not encouraging the brother. He's encouraging me. That's why the church of Smyrna did not need a long letter. That church was walking with God. But the church of Laodicea, that's a totally different picture. That's a totally different picture. The church of Laodicea needed a lot of encouragement, rebuke. And why does the Lord rebuke? Because he loves them. Notice, I'm standing at the door and knocking. How could that be? How could the Lord be outside of a church, his own people that he redeemed? You know how many times I've asked myself that question? Those he foreknew, those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he could be the firstborn amongst many. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he uh, justified, and those he justified, he glorified. How could those who were foreknown and elected and predestined have Christ outside? It could happen. David had Jesus, or rather the Lord, outside of his life. We know that. So Christians can come into that point of their life where they're not walking with Christ, where they have fool's gold instead of genuine faith, where they think they're clothed, but they're naked, where they think they have, they have riches, but they're poor. It can happen. What happens when a Christian is in that state? He needs to be rebuked. He needs correction. There's judgment. And that's what happened in the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth, Paul says, you are saints. You belong to God. 
But don't you think you could do, don't think for a moment that you could do whatever you want. Don't think you can walk in any which way you want. See, we have today the understanding of hyper grace that is embraced by the church in the West. Hyper grace. What do I mean by that? The other day, someone sent me a very interesting question by text, and I'll go to the answer in a moment. The question was this, what is the one trait, the one feature of God that is most prominent and motivated him to do all that he did? And the person answered his own question, I think it's God's love. And I answered, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not one attribute of God is greater than another. Impossible. God's holiness, God's compassion, God's righteousness, God's justice, God's infinity, all his attributes are of equal worth. And because he is an infinite God, his attributes are also infinite. His essence is glory. And every one of those attributes are rays that shine from his essence, from his glory. When we think that God is just love and he loves us and he has such love for us, oh my goodness, and we just sing about his grace and we do not ponder on the other attributes and we don't pay attention to them, we have an image that is an idol of God. That's not the true God. We are no better than the people of Israel who built a calf and said, here's the God that brought you out of Egypt. We need to have him reveal himself to us in the manner that he chooses through his holy word. Every attribute of God is important. Every single one of them. The one attribute that would scare me the most. In fact, there were two. One, the wrath of God. Two, the holiness of God. See, God's justice, I appreciated God's justice. In other words, God moving in favor of those who've been wronged. He is a just God. God's righteousness, that he always does that which is right. I appreciated that. I found comfort in that. God's power. I found comfort in the fact that he's powerful because it meant that things will not continue as they seem, but that God at the end will have the last say. God's sovereignty brought comfort to me. God's infinity was incomprehensible, still is, but it showed me the reason why Jesus had to come, because we only see God in the Son. All of these attributes comforted me, but His holiness scared me. His wrath terrified me. Terrified me. And yet those are His attributes. So when we say, God is love, God is love, God is love, and we ignore the other attributes, we minimize them, we pretend Yeah, they're there, but God's love, uh, that's the right one. That's the true trait of God. Because God is love, we say, based on the words of John. God's word says, God is jealous. Did you know that? You know, it says, God is angry. Did you know that? Did you know that it says, God is righteous. God is holy. In fact, it says, God is holy, holy, holy to the third degree. So when we just focus on God's love, then we become a loving kind of people. And we become so loving that we are afraid to correct. We are afraid to exercise discipline. 
And what happens is the church becomes weak. A church that is drowning in love is a weak church. A church that has a correct understanding of the different attributes of God is a healthy church. And that's what we want. We want to be a healthy church. That's why it says, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his rebuke. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Rebuke. If you were to ask any Christian today, ask yourself this question, in fact. Name me five practices of the church that are important. What comes to mind? One, prayer. Two, the gathering of the saints. Three, the ordinances, the observance of the ordinances, baptism and Holy Communion. Four, naming some, go ahead, giving. Five, fellowship, you can go on and on. Here's the one practice no Christian mentions. I've asked this question over and over. Discipline. Discipline. It's a church practice. It was real in the days of Paul. And it must be real for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In this chapter, we don't have the time to read the entire chapter. You'll read about a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. Whether they were married or not, we don't, we don't know. But he was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmom most likely. And Paul writes to this church that was letting this happen. Letting it happen openly. He says, what are you doing? A little leaven makes the whole lump rise. A little bit of sin entering the church causes the church to grow in arrogance. It grows in selfishness. And this is why he writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13, I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is a sexually immoral person. Imagine you were to go to someone who's a Christian, a brother, and you say, brother, you're sleeping with someone. You're doing it openly. It's on your Facebook page. It's everywhere. What are you doing? You are a child of God. You are a Christian. I care about you. I love you. But you know how many Christians do that? Very few. Or an idolater, verbally abusive, habitually drunk, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a person. They need to feel that they are being disciplined. For what business of mine is to judge outsiders? We're not here to judge those who live immorally outside. I know people who are so concerned with how the LGBTQ agenda is being promoted in schools. That's wonderful. How about the immorality within the church? That is of more concern, much more important. Do not judge those, aren't we not to judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the evil person from among yourselves. Notice he calls him evil. He's a Christian. This is a child of God. Because in the 2 Corinthians, 
He tells the church, now receive him back. This is a Christian. A Christian who is opening flagrantly, living in sin. And the church did not know what to do with it. Maybe it's someone powerful, we don't know. So judgment begins with the house of God. That's what Peter is saying. Judgment begins with the house of God. Peter's been saying to this point to the people who are suffering that if they are enduring persecution and they're facing hardship, to always remember that God is sovereign in that persecution. And if you are sinning and there's suffering in your life, God is still sovereign. Whatever the cause of suffering in your life, whether it be because people mistreat you or whether it be because there's sin in your life, God is sovereign. He monitors 24-7 with his watchful eye. The God of Israel doesn't sleep or slumber. He doesn't. And he makes sure that his church is observed carefully. While some were suffering for the persecution and because of the hardship they were receiving from their peers, others were being corrected by God. That's what Peter is saying. That's why he speaks about judgment begins in the household of God. There's correction, and that correction is necessary. But how can we avoid correction? We avoid it if we discipline ourselves, if we judge ourselves, if we correct ourselves, if we hold each other accountable. Otherwise, God comes with his hand of judgment because he wants a pure church. When he saved the people of Israel, from Egypt. This is what he tells them. You are not going to do what they did in Egypt. And you're not going to do what the people are doing right now in Canaan. When I bring you in, you will behave differently. Otherwise, the land will spew you out like it will spew them out. Because the land is mine. I'm giving it to you in trust. I want you to behave a certain way. So they said, but what, what doesn't God want? Just read Leviticus 18. And it's very clear what he doesn't want. What they were practicing in Egypt and in Canaan were that picture that you have in Leviticus 18. The different kinds of sexual immorality that is explained, that's highlighted in Leviticus 18. And it's disgusting. Every single one of those items is what they were practicing. That's why when you read about Lot's daughters getting Lot drunk so they can have sex with him, that was common in Sodom. Dads having sex with their daughters, moms having sex with their sons, people having sex with animals. This was common. This was not something... In fact, if you look at the story of Lot, the men of the city said, bring them out. I mean, where do you see that? That doesn't exist even today. That is how far they were. When God reveals himself to Abraham, he says, the sins of the Amorites, in other words, in that area of Canaan, have not reached to their completion. But when they do, I will judge them. And that's why Israel then was brought in to wipe out completely all the Canaanites, all of them, from the youngest to the oldest, because their sins had reached their limit. God told this to Abraham 430 years earlier. 
430 years for them to repent, for them to change, for them to draw back. None of them did. They kept this wicked behavior. Leviticus 18 explains to you, gives you a picture besides giving their children in sacrifice in the fire, which is something that God says clearly, I detest. So all that activity in Leviticus 18, it's repeated again, by the way, in Leviticus 20. In Leviticus 18, it tells you, you will not behave this way. This way. In Leviticus 20, it says, if you do any of these things, you're going to die. You're going to die. And this is how you'll die. And then he explains how they die. They will be stoned. If a man marries a mother and his daughter, has sex with both, mother and daughter, they are to be burnt with fire. Why? It was to be shown the people of Israel, I want holiness. I want you to be a different people. I don't want you walking according to the customs of those other nations. You are mine. You are to be holy. So why does God save us? He doesn't save us just to be there with us. And we can do whatever we want. He saves us to change us. So that we become his people. So we can love him with a heart that has been purified. So we could be the bride whose garments are not spotted without wrinkle. So that we can be presented to a bridegroom without blemish. So we can come before him rejoicing over the fact that he has sanctified us. That's why he saves us. It's for his glory. His glory. And that's why for the writer of the Hebrews, he says these words to the church that was the Jewish Christians, particularly who were suffering tremendously. He, goes this, he says this in Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you have a child that's not disciplined, that's why you have an increase of crime all over the states. Where there is no dad... Where there is no correction, that child is destined to prison, a life of crime, right? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. The difference between my dad, your dad, and our Heavenly Father is that our Heavenly Father has a clear objective that he will not, will not miss. I can discipline my son because at that moment, he may be irking me, he may be doing something that brings dishonor to my family, my name, all that kind of stuff. Our God does not have any missteps when he disciplines. Look at his goal. His goal is this, so that we may share his holiness. Every suffering that comes into my life, every pain, every hardship has a specific goal. Holiness, holiness, 
Holiness. That's the goal. Not so that Jesus can be with us as I travel the road and have my road how nice and comfortable and everything is going to be just hunky-dory for me. That's not the reason he saves us. I've seen people many times, the Lord saved me. My life was meaningless before. Now it has meaning. He doesn't save you for meaning. I thank God he saved me because first I had, my life was in drugs and, you know, I was doing a whole bunch of stupid things, but now God saved me from drugs. He doesn't save you from drugs. That's not the point. That's not the point. He saves you to be holy. That's the point. Because he's going to present a holy church to the bridegroom. Nothing else. And so he brings whatever suffering is needed. And our God is, in, is so wise and so powerful that he, he custom makes the suffering for each one of us. He custom makes it. And he brings it into our life. Look at the life of Job. Look at the life of Joseph. Look at the life of David. Look at when they were suffering. And you will see a life that was shaped for holiness. That's what God is doing. We need to understand his plan, not our plan. My plan, Lord, this is my plan. I want to have a wonderful life. I want to have children, in my case, grandchildren. I want marriage. I, I want a wonderful person in my life. I want a comfortable house. I, want, I just want a great job where people don't mistreat me. And can we stop praying like this? Let's stop praying this way. Please. Why don't we pray, Lord, make me holy. Make me holy and do whatever is necessary to do that. I will give you praise. Bring whatever pain in my life. Now, we're afraid to pray that prayer. I know we are. I was afraid to pray that prayer. I'd say, Lord, bring pain, but, you know, just take it easy with the pain. As if I can tell the infinite God who has intelligence beyond my comprehension how to bring in pain. Really. That's what I would do. Oh, just, Lord, just, you know, because that's, we're limited in our understanding. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant, but painful, yet to those who've been trained by it. Notice, imagine a church trained in discipline, trained in hardship, trained in difficulty, trained in persecution, trained, not a church that just falls apart, not a church that wants to be comfortable, not a church that is scared of difficulties, that looks into the future and says, oh my goodness, I wonder how things will turn out. Not a church like that, but a church that looks into the future and says, let it come, our God is sovereign. Trained. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So there are Christians who suffer for the gospel, and they first face persecution, but God is in charge. Then there are Christians who suffer because God is bringing hardship to produce that character of holiness, because he wants them to share in God's holiness. Whatever the situation, rejoice. I don't think we are facing persecution, so whatever suffering comes in our life here in the West, it is because God wants to produce holiness in us. The trait 
of holiness is so sacred. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Imagine God would say, well, you know what? I'll just leave you to your whims. I'll just, you know what, you want me to be there for you and just provide you a job and give you a house and give you a husband or a wife and you want to have children? You want to be a granddaddy and just see your grandkids and just hug them, have them on your lap and play all day long and, and then, and you want that? Go ahead. Imagine God saying that. <laughs> You'll never do that. He saved us not because we wanted to be saved. He saved us because he wanted us saved. That's the point. He didn't save us because you wanted salvation or I wanted salvation. He saved us because he wanted to save me. That's right. And he's going to have a pure bride. A pure bride. When you go home this evening, read Matthew 25. You read three categories of self-deceived individuals. Three categories. The first category, the five virgins. That's the first group. The second category, the lazy steward who was given a talent and does nothing with it. The third category, the goats. It's an interesting name, the goats. It's called hypocatastasis. It's a way of representing someone. Those three individuals or three categories of people, all of them were self-deceived. The first one, they come, Lord, Lord, open the door, open the door, it's us. Depart from me. The lazy steward, Lord, here it is, here's your talent. I just saved it and, and I'm, I expect to be rewarded as well. Throw him out. The third category, Lord, it's us. No, it's us, it's us. We, we, we're, we, you, know, we, you know us, we know you. No, you don't. No, I don't know you. I was hungry, you never fed me. I was thirsty, you never gave me to drink. I was naked, you never clothed me. I was in prison, you never visited me. I, I, you, I don't know you. Depart from me into everlasting fire. Three categories of self-deceived individuals. Do you know how many self-deceived people there are that are attending churches? They're just attending and they're just there and they have no clue that they're self-deceived. Would you rather that? You know how many times I looked at that chapter, Matthew 25, and I prayed, Lord, deliver me from falling into any one of these self-deception. We need to pray that way. That's how we pray. We don't just read stories and say, oh yeah, thank God I'm not there. No, no. You pray it. You take that chapter, you pray it. Lord, deliver me from falling into self-deception. Thank God he doesn't abandon his own. The sloppy walk and doesn't not leave us to do our own thing. He corrects us. Because at the end, he's going to present us in this way. Jude 24 and 25, now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, notice, blameless, with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. That's what he's doing. So what is he doing? He's presenting us blameless then. But to make us blameless, he will bring us through any situation necessary. Work in us his perfect will so that at the end we come before our bridegroom blameless with joy. Isn't that wonderful? That's an amazing thing. There's nothing greater. See, I'd like a comfortable life. 
If you're praying that way, I just want safety. I, I just don't want to get COVID-19. You know, I just want this thing to go away. And I just want, you know, can Jesus just be my little buddy and just walk next to me type of thing? You, that's not God. That's not God. You're not reading scriptures. You may be reading a verse here and there, but you're not reading scriptures. Read the Bible. He's going to present us faultless with exceeding joy in his presence. Can you imagine that? And when you stand before him, you're going to say, Lord, I know it's not because of me. It is all you. Because I know my DNA. I know myself. I know my heart. It is wicked and vile. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I know that, Lord. I know it. And if I stand before you, someone who deserves judgment, it is all because of you. You did it. And I give you glory. And I give you praise. You see, that church of Laodicea, with that rebuke, there will be those who will repent, those who are his. If you think you're a Laodicean believer, fear not. He's not going to let you go. <laughs> He's not. He is going to bring you to whatever is necessary until repentance takes place. Isn't that beautiful? What a wonderful God we serve. Let's thank him and praise him together. Heavenly Father, when we read your word, we are amazed with your ways, your sovereignty, your providence. We are amazed with your holiness, your compassion. We look at your dealings with the people of Israel and we get a better understanding of who you are. You are incomprehensible. There's no way we could fully understand who you are. But Lord, we ask that you would continue to open our eyes to see all that you are as God. And not that we have a God of our own making. Deliver us from becoming a people who are idolatrous. Deliver us from falling into error. Deliver us from being self-deceived. Lord, we pray that we would love you for who you are, for the way you have chosen to reveal yourself through the pages of Scripture. Cause us, Lord, to fear you and love you, to rejoice with trembling in your presence, knowing that one day we are going to appear in the very presence of our bridegroom, faultless, blameless, and with exceeding joy. We look forward to that day. We look forward to being in your presence. In the meanwhile, I pray that we would indeed hold each other accountable, that we would be open to correction, that we would not allow the leaven of sin to enter in the church. And Lord, help us to see that when it does enter our lives, sometimes very secretly, sometimes ever below the radar, you always take notice and you will purify us, whatever it takes, because those, Lord, you have foreknown, you have predestined. And those you've predestined, you've called. And those you've called, you've justified. And those you've justified, you have glorified. This is your plan. This is your will. We thank you for the covenant, the plan of redemption that you have conceived for your glory. Thank you for loving us and making it happen. Because if it was up to us, 
we would never say yes to you. We would become stubborn and do our own thing. But you are a God, O oh Lord, that goes beyond what we would ever expect. Your ways are unsearchable, unfathomable. We praise you, O oh God, and we give you glory. Draw others to Christ who are still lost for your name's sake, O oh Lord, and use us at a time like this. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.